You're listening to episode 15. Hey there, Business Journalist family. Welcome to another super episode of the Business Journalist podcast where I feature amazing guests and I ask in-depth questions about their entrepreneurial journey. You know, my belief is that it doesn't matter how your journey in life started. It's not that important because great or small, the important thing is how you finish. So whatever your situation today, I want you to know that you can get your hopes up, that you are good enough to chase your dreams. In today's show, family, I dig into how it all started for our feature guests, how they have built their brand, and I even get into all the juicy details about their big challenges, their growth moments, and all their big breakthroughs. So it's going to be an amazing show. I actually selfishly started this podcast because I love to hear how entrepreneurs did it, and I wanted to ask the questions for myself. So really, I am the number one student. So get ready for amazing coaching tips, family, to help you maximize your business dreams. Welcome and thank you for joining me here on the Business Generals Podcast where I chat with amazing entrepreneurs five days a week. Davis Mutabwa here, your host. I'm super excited to bring you today's feature guest, Mr. Joel Gandara. Joel, are you ready to share your entrepreneurial story? I am, Davis. Joel is the president of Underwear Station, an amazing company that he founded. It manufactures and distributes men's apparel. Joel's company also acts as a fulfillment center for other brands and for e-commerce websites. Joel also owns Moro Capital, which acquires other e-commerce websites and businesses, and that's been happening over the last few years. So I'm super excited to listen to more about Joel's story. So ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Joel to the show. Joel, before we talk business, perhaps just take 30 seconds just to let us know who's Joel outside of business. Sure. Uh, let's see. I'll start from the beginning. I was born in Havana, Cuba. And uh, so I was born in a communist country and I left at the age of four. Uh, got out there in the Mariel boat list in 1980 and came on a boat over to the U.S. with my family. And uh, so I've got to a land of opportunity and I've taken advantage of it. So my personal story, I'm married. I've been married for over 14 years. My wife and I have four kids. They go from 11 years old all the way down to two years old, and we're done. We're just those four, and we're very busy with them. Uh, let, and uh, let's see what else about myself that's not business-related. I'm a very happy person. I'm very optimistic. I actually didn't start out that way. It's quite the contrary, but I've learned how to become that way, and it's helped me in everything that I do, personal and business. Um, and then on the other side, I, I enjoy exercising. I love to jog. Uh, four or five days a week. I actually do yoga. I'm very active. I eat healthy. I take care of myself. And I love self-improvement uh, in business, personal books, audio books. So that sums it up in about 30 seconds. Fantastic. So do you go much back to Cuba at all? I have never been there. And I have uh, made a promise to myself that I will go when uh, once they have Elections. Very good. Yeah, that's great. Look, thanks for sharing your story. Um, Joel, uh, let's turn to business. How long uh, would you say you've been in uh, full-time business for yourself? Okay. Uh, overall, it's 20 years. I'm 40 years old right now, but, but really full-time, full-time, it's, it's been about 12 years since I haven't worked for anybody. So I'm proud to say in my 30s and now in my beginning of my 40s, I've never worked for someone else. So right around 29 years old, I was finally able to leave the company that I worked for and, and go full-time. 
Well, congratulations. So, uh, tell us a little bit about um, the core revenue pillars for your business today. Our business in, in the clothing industry is quite vertical. We own 11 brands of men's underwear, men's swimwear, some socks, some jeans. Um, in the next two months, that will go to 13 brands. And the importance of this is we own the brands, and then we distribute. Uh, our, our wholesale has been shrinking intentionally over the last few years, but we go direct to the consumer. So we have uh, e-commerce sites where we sell direct to consumer. These are multi-brand websites. These are brand, you know, solo brand websites where if we have brand X, we have X.com and we'll sell that product directly to consumers. Um, the other thing that we do, we operate our own warehouse distribution center um, and and we can fulfill for anyone uh, if if you you know somebody has a product and they need a warehouse we can do that fulfillment. We have a very good distribution center in Florida in the United States, and uh, we've put over a million dollars of technology into it. So it's a very fast, very accurate distribution center. And then the other thing we actually do is, and this has all kind of begun organic. You know, you go from one thing, and and later I'm sure I'll tell you how I got started, but. Um, you go from one thing to the other, and we've gotten to the point where we are now offering a uh, customer service call center for people, you know, to return emails, SEO, um, development uh, of software, uh, handling people's e-commerce emails, and that sort of thing. And that's just through a process of figuring it out ourselves and seeing what works and showing it to some people. We've now been asked to help people with that different entrepreneurs, so we're in the process of, of growing that business. Um, so yeah, you know, you've segued quite well there. So just tell us how did that journey start for you? Did you come out of corporate or straight out of school? Um, you know, it sounds like you started early at, at around age 20. So maybe just walk us through the key moments of your story because I mean, most people would, um, finish high school or, or college and go straight up into a working career. How did that translate for you to find yourself um, running your business? Yeah, my story is quite different from the average person. I think um, it took a while to get things going. However, I did start very early. The beginning for me was was the fourth grade. I was probably ten years old, and my parents worked at an international radio station in California where I grew up, and. They would get letters from all around the world. This is well before email, and there would be thousands of envelopes with stamps on them in garbage cans. And I would spend the summers at my parents' job, and I would get scissors, and I'd cut out all the stamps, and I'd put together albums. And then when school started in the fall, I would take those to school, and I'd sell stamps that had zero cost of goods sold for me because it was just my labor. And I'd make a few dollars every day selling stamps from all around the world, and I'd categorize them on pages of, look, here's a British stamps, here's, here are stamps from Australia, here are stamps from Canada. So I did that, and that was pretty cool. I made some money, and I, was, I had some attention with my friends. Uh, I also started selling collectible cards that I actually made money off of uh, in the fourth grade. I think I was making about $40 U.S. a month uh, back in mid-80s, so it was pretty good. Um, So, But I always thought of that as that's who I am, that's what I do. These are just side things. I never knew you could make a real business out of it. I always had this mental roadblock that I somehow thought, I can't believe that I thought this, but I used to believe that People who own businesses were just geniuses. How could they do this? That's amazing. I, I, I thought too big of them. So it took me years to really get going. So what happened to me is uh, at 20 years old, 19, around there, 21, I was always hustling and, and working hard and trying to meet my – I had a full-time job 
I'd go to college part time in the at night, some nights, and then I would run around and go to garage sales and find things that people were selling, and then I'd. When I had a few things, I'd take them to the flea market and I'd make some money that way. And one day I came across a guy selling underwear, brand new, top designer brand, uh, in a garage sale in front of his house. And I bought 500 pieces at a dollar each, took them to the flea market. Took me a couple, a few weekends, but I uh, turned into $3,000. And that was pretty good. So I started exploring. I, I moved away from flea markets and I went on to eBay this is around 1996 or so and from there it just went to one thing what led to another however these were always small-time projects so I could not leave my full-time job um, but but it kind of you know it grew and I found a brand out of uh, uh, that I imported their products and I started doing wholesale doing trade shows in Las Vegas I went to Paris a few times and sold to stores and realized wow this is an actual business I've got something going here and uh, like I said earlier, like around age 29 or so, it got to a point where my job paid me X amount, but my business was almost at that level, and I felt a lot happier working for myself. So at around age 29, uh, uh, our first child on the way, I made, a, I think, kind of a gutsy move and left my job. And fortunately, my wife had a good job. She was a registered nurse at the time, and she helped us stay afloat for a little while while I worked 16 hours a day and made zero money for a little while until we really got it going. Wow. So lots of uh, different aspects to your story. Um, So how did you manage to know, um, you know, $500 investment in that original, you know, stock purchase that that would have been a fair, a fair chunk of change for you, I'm assuming at the time. Um, And um, what, what was your gut feeling at the time? Were you very familiar with the flea markets and you knew you were going to offload all of it or was it just a bit of a, uh, a risk? Well, I have an uncle who was a full-time mailman with the Postal Service for years. He's retired now. But every weekend he did this and that's where I got the idea from that, oh, you can go buy stuff and sell them at the flea market. And he had an eye. He still has it. He can see anything and tell you exactly what that would resell for. I do not have that ability, but I couldn't pass up because I went to this garage sale and the guy said he wanted $3 each. I talked him down to a dollar. But what interested me was that the products had stickers on them that said $13, $14. I later learned he, they weren't stolen products or anything. The guy was a sales rep, an independent sales rep, and he had to buy all of these at a quarter or 50 cents or something like that. And these were his leftover samples. Well, the only judgment I could make to see if this is worthwhile is the fact that at that garage sale in front of his home, people were actually buying at $3 each. So I thought, well, if he could sell them to me for a dollar, I think I can sell them for three. He's doing it here. I probably have a better chance at the flea market where there's 10,000 people. Uh, and I made that purchase. The only problem is you never really know until you do it and you test things. I was driving home. I had just finished eight hours of work. It was a Sunday afternoon. It was about 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock. And I remember thinking, you know, I have to wait until next Sunday where I have a little bit of time to go to the flea market. And I said, that I'm not going to sleep all week if I have to worry about whether I made a good purchase or not. And you're right, $500, I grew up very poor. $500 was a lot of money for me. So I said, you know what, I don't care if the flea market closes in two hours. I'm going to go pay for my spot right now. And I drove in, paid my $30, and they even asked me at the door. I'll never forget. The girl told me, you know we close in two hours. You're going to pay for a spot now? I said, I need to know if these things will sell. I paid my $30, 
I broke even that day. I got my $500 back, and when I packed up the car, the car was still full because I sold them at 5 and $6 each. I didn't get rid of that many pieces. I still had like 400 pieces left. So that's when I knew it was a good investment after I tested it. It's an amazing story. I love it. Um, so how, how many years did you do flea markets for? Uh, maybe roughly two or three years and then eBay came around and that changed everything because I started putting items now on a worldwide flea market. eBay was really big in the late 90s. It was you know, a craze. And so I got the entire country and then later the entire world to bid on my items. So I started selling items, those, those items, those samples that I would buy from this rep who sold to me every collection. Maybe every six months he'd sell me a thousand pieces, 1200 pieces. Uh, we did that to actually together for 11 years. I would buy from him in the process. I built up a business, he, you know, but I'd still buy from him. So eBay opened it up because now I had people bidding on my items. It was more auctions back then. Uh, and they would pay me, more than they actually cost in the store. And people knew it, and they'd keep buying it. Uh, so, so I went from a dollar cost, I'd sell things for $13, 14 each, and sell you know, thousands of dollars a month, and it was a pretty good income at the time. Wow. And how did you then transition from you know, flea market, eBay, um, to getting, I don't know, a new supplier and uh, maybe new markets? Yeah, I, I'm a little bit obsessive. I think I'm, I'm hoping that's a good trait and it helped me in the business. I would spend every day searching on Google or Yahoo or whatever it was back then for more things because I always thought, you know, this guy who sells me these samples, it's great. It's really, really good. However, he could stop selling to me and furthermore, it wasn't enough. I always needed more. If he could sell me more or someone else can sell me more, then I could make this a career. I can make this a living. So I would search all the time online and I found a brand that was selling their products. They manufactured in Mexico and they didn't really have very good representation in the U.S. So I contacted them and, and spoke to them by phone, placed an order, uh, tested their products first on a small level, maybe $500. And then after I saw it was selling, I bought a few thousand, maybe 2000 or $2,500 worth of product from them. I put them on eBay and they sold extremely well. I made very good money. I called them back a week or two later and said, I sold everything you guys sold me. I want more. I bought again. And then we had a conversation, the owner of that factory and that brand and I, and I asked him if he could make me the exclusive uh, retailer or the exclusive distributor of his brand in the United States. And when in turn, what I would do is go to trade shows and try to get this sold into stores. I had no idea what I was doing, but I spent my first $5,000 on a trade show. I flew out to Las Vegas and took orders and I got some orders and I started selling to some stores. I couldn't believe it. And, uh, and that's how it really got going. Uh, oh, wow. So trade shows, I mean, um, and that's pretty big in, in certain countries. I know it's pretty big in the U.S. market. So, you know, five grand down traveling interstate or, you know, somewhere f far away from your home hometown. Um, I think that's a, a big investment, a, a bit of a, a bit of a, a risk. Um, and how did that all go? Did you brand yourself? Did you get a, additional capital? Did you just save up all your money to do this? Um, how did that translate for you? Yeah, I I have never taken loans or debt or partners, so I don't. That's not me. Maybe it is for some people, but I need to sleep at night. Um, instead, what I've always done is funded everything myself. I self-insure myself as much as I can. I I save a lot of money and I don't spend. I spend as if tomorrow it's all going to be taken away. And the result of that is that it, you know, when you need that 
injection of funds and you're looking for a partner, you're looking for a bank to loan it to you, in my situation, I am all of that. I I go grab the cash and I put it into whatever it is. So on a small level example like that one, I put the $5,000, I... I had to spend on hotel and meals and, and, and be there for four or five days. So I did all of that myself, and I took the risk, and I knew very well that I could lose it. And I said, well, if I lose it, I lose it, but I, I got to know. And I did it, and it, it really worked out. It paid off to, to get yeah. started. So, so this is how you transition from, um, I guess, flea markets online. Now you're getting into, into stores. So this is, is, I would assume this was your number one growth marketing strategy to go and do trade shows. Is this what you primarily focused on or did you pivot into something else as you were getting into, um, wholesale stores or retail stores? Yeah. In the beginning, I had, I knew I could not build a brick and mortar store. And I had no idea how to effectively run an e-commerce site. And this is around 2004, roughly, somewhere around there. Um, so Internet was already going and people were selling products online, but I was not good at that. I didn't know how to do it. I had no partners. So my only focus was wholesale. Uh, I just wanted to sell this into stores and let them do their thing. Um, so that's what I did. I I got that brand. I started wholesaling with them. Um and then, you know, we had some ups and downs. I can get into that now or, or get into it later to explain how we got on to the next level. Yeah, no, you, go ahead. So so something that happened is um, for a few years, I was doing trade shows, growing the business, moved it out of my apartment. Then we moved to, into a house, and I had a big garage with everything. Then I moved it into our first warehouse, uh, and that was a huge step. And it's because we were growing the wholesale business. But then uh, something really bad happened. Uh, that later turned out obviously like all bad th- or like many bad things to be a blessing in disguise. That brand that I was uh, working with decided to um, take over some of my territories. And even though I had established them, uh, that was a decision they made. They didn't break any agreements. We had nothing in writing. And either way, at the, in the end of the day, it was their brands. They owned it. And uh, uh, Here's what happened. So by then we had, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 stores I was selling to, and things were going great. Uh, however, I saw the end because I, I thought they're, they're not going to need me anymore. They've got the customers, and they're loyal to them. Well, that very bad thing happened. I, I came to the realization that something bad's happening, and uh, fortunately I was given good advice. And a friend told me, well, you know what? I think it's you who they're buying from. I don't know if it's just the brand. You've built an, a relationship with these stores. Why don't you try to market yourself with another brand? Create a brand. So talk about a, a big risk. Um, you know, it's easy to give that advice. First of all, it was great advice from a friend of mine. Uh, however, I had to put the money into it. Uh, and here's what happened. I spoke to some factories, got some things lined up knew the styles that I wanted to develop, and I, I gave an $80,000 payment, uh, and it was probably close to everything I had at the time, to create my first brand, and we did it, uh, and about 12 to 13 months later, we had retailed a million dollars worth of that brand. That was nothing. We just created it out of nothing, and uh, now we've sold over those last seven or eight or however many years since we actually launched that brand, um, we've sold... I don't know how many millions of dollars. And since then, we've developed, we're now at 11 brands that we've developed. Um, in the next two months, we'll be at 13. We have, we have two more launching uh, in the next two months. So, so you know, the big up, everything was going great, and a huge down 
which led us to the best thing possible. Because had I stayed happy with selling someone else's brand, things would have stagnated, and that's where I would have been, promoting and selling someone else's brand and building enterprise value for their business and basically having some sales but no value to my business. That's amazing. So um, I'm assuming the um, Mexico brand that you started with was actually branded under their business, their name, and you were like the rep. So was that a bit of a challenge to actually go back to the stores and say, hey, I'm actually bringing out my own brand, um, you know, don't worry about the other one, or how did that conversation go? And and where do you go to find factories at that point um, and new designs, etc.? Was just that something that you had now become very familiar with? Sure. The first brand that we developed, we had not stopped working with that other factory, that other company, that other brand yet. So there were simultaneously, I did not have to put my buyers uh, in an uncomfortable situation. I did not have to say, stop buying that one, uh, start buying my new one. I, they just picked it up because we had a good relationship. They saw we delivered on time. Uh, we Everything we promised, we always delivered on it. So they were, they happily accepted it. And so, but however, in the beginning, that other brand was still stronger. What actually happened is uh, a few months later, they took a bigger step into our territory or a year later or so. That was really uh, scary. And we thought, that's it. We're going to lose them. So there we developed another brand. It was our second brand. And, you know, in clothing, there's a lot of similarities, and it's all legal. Nothing's patented in these in this situation, and, and we're not using the same trade name or anything, Mark, the brand. So we developed a similar brand to that first one just because we knew we were about to lose it because uh, we could see the signs. They were establishing a phone number here, an office here. You know, We're soon not going to be needed. So we went ahead, and uh, that was the tough one because there we had to go to buyers and say, we know you buy that one from us more, and that's one of your better-selling brands. Would you consider if we created one very similar, uh, but we can offer better pricing? You know, we're not a middleman; we'd be the owner. And uh, and there was the biggest surprise I've ever had. Everyone said, "Oh, if it's yours, I'll absolutely buy it from you." That was the response on every difficult phone call I made. By the third or fourth call, it was very easy. Uh, everybody was saying, "Yeah, of course, it's going to be similar. I'll buy it from you. I'd rather buy it from you." So that was a huge relief. That brand in its first year retailed around a million dollars as well. And then the other one was still growing, so they've both been growing. And then lastly, your your other question to find the manufacturing and to find the styles. I already knew the styles that we're selling. Once you do something long enough, you get an you get you kind of get an eye for it. I'm not a fashion person at all, but but I got a good idea of what people want and and so we found that first factory, started working with them. We've worked with a few and now we are our company actually owns a portion of the factory overseas. So we're as vertical as we can be. We own the manufacturing, we own the brands and then we own the retail stores online that sell directly to the consumer. So what was the key thing that you think um, made your customers at the time um, feel so um, okay with being able to switch to your brand new brand that the market didn't know? Um, what was that You know, couple of things that you think you were doing very well that made you stand out? Yeah, at the time, I did not understand it because I thought everybody did the things the way I do everything, which is the correct way. And so I thought, how do I stand out? I'm just another sales rep to these people. And it turns out I wasn't. Um, Every trade show, I'd go to dinner with them. Obviously, I spent a lot of money taking everybody to dinner, but I'd take them to dinner and and be kind of really became friends with these people. 
and ultimately what did it is that they would tell me, you know that you are the best rep that uh, sells me anything. They would tell me that. And I, and I never understood that. I did nothing special. There was no secret sauce. There was no secret words that I would say. All that I would do is if they called me, I'd answer. And if they asked me for something, I'd tell them what I could do and when I could do it. And then after I hung up, I did what, what I said I was going to do, and I did it before I said I could do it. So if you needed me to do this thing for you and you needed it by Wednesday, I would say, I can do that, and I can do it by Wednesday. And then I would do it as fast and as good as I, as well as I could, and I'd have it to you by Tuesday. But that's simple. That's under-deliver or under-promise and over-deliver. I, I don't think that's complicated. And I realized that um, I must have been doing that right because – I got calls from competitors to be their reps, which is crazy because they just, they just thought I was a sales rep. They didn't know I owned the business and the brands. They saw me out at the trade shows, and they tried to hire me as their sales reps. Um, I also had had a very big, it was fantastic. I got to work with Spanx, the compression uh, company that makes all the leggings and those sort of things. They made a men's line for a while and I was contacted by a store, uh, actually by one of their sales reps saying, we've got, you've been recommended to us as a good men's rep. Would you work with us? And, and I did for about five years and it was a great experience. Learned a lot from them and made a lot of money being a rep for them uh, in, a, in the men's market. Uh, all that under our company. I wasn't, I was not an employee. I, it was part of our business. Um, but all that came from being recommended. And again, I did nothing special. 90% of it is just show up. And the other 10% is work and do what you're supposed to do and things start happening. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And I think that's uh, great lessons in there. Um, how to just build a you know, purely offline um, business um, you know, right from, from the boot of your car, essentially. Do you think, um, Joel, it, things have changed if, if somebody is, um, you know, somewhere across the world or even across from somewhere where you are and they, they're trying to build, um, an apparel brand? Um, is this a strategy that they could follow or would, would you recommend that they do something differently? Um, some things have changed. The, the core has not changed. People are still people. You still deliver on what you promise. You don't lie to them about ship dates. You know, you, you do the right thing and things will happen well. However, there are some differences now. Um, there, there was no social media really when I started and I don't know the, the effect of it overall. I don't know how to value it exactly, but there's that. There's the ability to go direct to consumer much easier today than there was when I started. So when I started, it was great that I did the trade shows, but I used to spend $75,000 a year on trade shows and we don't do those anymore. We're not in, we don't care about the wholesale business. Um, because for that money, you could go reach the consumer directly and sell at full price, not at half price wholesale. Uh, so there is an importance in wholesale. One value that I got from it is that those people, those stores that bought from us and put it out there, they kind of helped us bring awareness to our brands in their local markets. Um, so that was helpful, and that's I guess maybe that will never go away. I'm not sure. But it is not the most important thing anymore. I think the best thing is to go direct to consumer and be as vertical as you can. I think I've used the word vertical maybe more than once today, and it's because of that. Um, to make something and sell it directly to someone is the best way to service a customer, which in the end is going to make you more money. You get to find out what people want and you make more of it. You're not relying now on, well, I hope the store that I'm selling to puts my products in front because I know that's what people want. 
But then they put it in the back, and you don't sell any, and now the market was not served. Nobody made money. It's a disaster. So the best way to reach people and take care of people and make money is to go to as direct as you can. So I want to ask you, um, Joel, you said at the intro that you're now purchasing um, e-commerce websites, and I'm assuming some of these are in your sphere of influence in your in men's apparel, perhaps. So could you give us one story that has excited you a lot um, that is recent and, you know, maybe how, how things have changed in the evolution of how they're starting and, and how they're growing their brand. Yeah, that is the actual point where everything gets the most exciting for us because all this took years to build up. But in the last three years, our business has boomed. And for one reason, we were wholesaling. We were trying to sell a little bit on Amazon, a little bit on eBay, some little brand websites to get our stuff out there. But it wasn't until a very good friend who was a buyer, a customer of mine for 10 years, uh, got into a situation where he just wanted to get out of the business, retire, and sell it. And it was an e-commerce website, multi-brand, so it had all the big brands. It had my brands. It had a lot of brands. Um, so they, at the time, they were quite small. They were selling two, two maybe a quarter million dollars U.S., maybe $300,000 a year, something like that. The margins were not very high because they owned no proprietary brands. Instead, they just bought and sold. Well, we we talked about this possibility for two or three years, and finally it happened, and we bought that business from them. We relocated it here under our roof, and we took that site that at most would sell 300000 in a good year. And in our second full year, we did over a million dollars on it, and that was last year. Uh, so we, we've now we're closing on our we just hit three years with the site this year that one site will do around two million dollars uh, just that one site that two that three years ago is doing 250 to 300,000 uh, so that really gave us a great great experience it's not just that the sales were high we were selling more than anything our brands so we're now taking a product uh, you know that you pay uh, let's say, let's just throw out easy numbers. You pay $5 to manufacture this and you're going to offer it for around $20 and you're going to sell it. And then you get to get the sales data. You get to know feedback from customers. You know what they like. So we can develop better brands, more brands, better styles within each brand. And that has allowed us to do many things. So that was three years ago, almost to the day. And Last month, we closed on the purchase of a business from Atlanta, Georgia, here in the U.S., and we closed on the purchase of another business from Montreal, Canada. Um, those were our fifth and our sixth acquisitions. We want to acquire a million companies, but we're, you know it takes a little while to find good deals, um, and that's what we're doing. We're buying up businesses that fit in our space. They fit under our roof and in our racks and with our technology. We haven't explored the possibility of selling, let's say, truck tires or, or big things, but we're, we're looking for businesses that fit what we do. So they can go in small packages, they fit in our warehouse. You know, Obviously, we can expand and grow more warehouse space, but, but that's what we're looking for, and that's what's worked for us. And in the end, you know, it's worked out pretty well. The six uh, companies that we've bought so far were really win-win situations. I've stayed in touch with all of those folks that sold us their businesses, and they're happy. They built it to where they could. They did not have a few extra million dollars laying around to build it any larger, and they came out with some money, and, and it's a win-win all the way around. Well, that's, that's amazing. So what are the key things you're looking for um, when you're buying these businesses? Are you, are you trying to understand their, their database or 
um, ways that you can leverage what you currently already have, other than the, f- the things that you've mentioned, you know, being able to warehouse it and small package sizes, etc. Uh, from a numbers perspective, for instance. There's a few things that we look at. Because we're strong on men's clothing, men's underwear, men's swimwear, uh, we, we're looking for the net lateral or, or, or actually similar st- or steps that aren't too far. We don't want to stretch ourselves thin. So, so for example, we are interested in sock companies. And, and when you Google men's dress socks or something like whatever comes up or some of those subscriptions companies, we've talked to many of those because we're interested in learning a little bit more about them, start that conversation. And that's what we're hoping to acquire next, something like a sock company or ties or something where we can take advantage of over 100,000 good customers and then offer them this next thing. So if we know that you like to buy, make it real simple, if you buy cell phone covers and you're already coming to our website, we're not in that space, but just an example, you're buying cell phone covers and we've got 100,000 people buying them from us, well, the next logical step is to give them the, uh, sell them the, the, the charging station or the cord to charge their phone. And so that's what we want to do. We want to find the next thing because most of what we've purchased is right in our space. It's underwear, swimwear, that sort of thing. And then the other thing, how we analyze a business to purchase it, um, it's pretty simple. We look at their profit and loss statement and we take a marker, a black marker, and we cross off anything we can save money on. I mean, because when you go to sell, you're making $100,000 a year. Maybe you're going to get a multiple of two or three of your, of your profits. So you're making 100000 a year in your business. You want to sell it. Maybe someone will offer you a quarter million or $300,000 for it, and then it's going to take them two and a half, three years to break even, the new buyer. Well, what we do is we want to buy it for two hundred fifty or 300000 pay you a pretty fair price, but then we want to get that money back a lot sooner. So we look for how much are they paying in rent. They're paying 4000 a month in rent. Well, all that fits under our warehouse roof. Let's scratch that off and, and go on like that so that pretty soon we could realize, well, we could probably make $150,000 a year from this business. If we pay three we we'll pay it off in two years. That's a pretty good multiple in our favor. So those are the types of calculations that we do from the numbers perspective. Mm. What would you say, I know you've touched on this, but what would you say, Joel, has been the biggest breakthrough moment in your business, um, maybe in the more recent past? It's seeing that we can have an effect on the market and, and benefiting from it. Uh, once we got into retail, direct-to-consumer, we started making more money, uh, and that does not mean buying a boat and buying a mansion. It means investing more into the business, developing more brands, and we are actually in our niche area. We're beginning to dominate in it, and we're seeing it affect competitors. Uh, we've seen competitors go out of business. We've seen uh, competitors sell them their businesses to us. Uh, so all of that is having an impact, and it's kind of getting that avalanche started. We still think we're at one percent of what we're going to eventually do when it's all said and done but so this has all been recently the whole uh the spark you know getting into e-commerce direct to consumer and and seeing the growth from it that's what we're excited about every single day with our team um that's what we talk about that growth that's coming and and happening every single day and how have you grown your database um and how important is that um to you in terms of your customer database yeah, we in our business so far we we've tried, but we do not continue to do uh, pay per click, uh, Google ads, anything like that. Everything's organic, so we do a lot of organic SEO to get people to come onto the site. Um, things that have worked for us are uh, 
when you order on any of our e-commerce sites, uh, the, most likely the order is going to go out today, uh, number one, if not first thing in the morning, depending on what time you order. But it, So it's going to be a quick uh, process. You're going to be informed every step of the way. When the order is ticked and done and shipped, you get an email. Uh, when it's been delivered uh, and the Postal Service scans it, it tells you get an email saying it's been delivered. Um, uh, a few days later, it's going to ask you. Get, you're going to get an email saying, "What do you think of the products? Do you want to review them on our site?" So we're in touch with the people. That eliminates a lot of customer service needs. Uh, and the reason I'm mentioning all this about how do we get our customer database is because when you do all of those things very, very well, people become customers, long-term customers, and that's how we've kept people coming back to the site. We have an extremely strong retention because, first of all, we own the brands, so if you like them, you're going to buy them, and then you're going to buy them from our sites because that's where they're available. Uh, the other thing is, we, when I mentioned earlier that we've put in about a million dollars of technology into our back end and our warehouse and our system, it's all proprietary. Um, one of the things is, since we incorporated that, that our picking software to help us pick orders in our warehouse, we haven't had an error, and that was nine months ago. So we have not misshipped one piece, and we're sending thousands of pieces a day. We have not misshipped one piece. That helps you keep keep customers because, the, and by the way, there's something we do um, with our – I thought of it one day, and I thought that would be a pretty cool idea. When we hire anyone new, we find out in the interview process, if they're the person we want, we ask them, just like a last question in the interview, what's your favorite kind of candy or chocolate or snack food? And they'll tell us, you know, some candy bar. Well, on their first day, I go out and I buy them a bag of whatever they like the most, and I put it in a bag for them, and I write their name. And in front of all the employees, uh, we say, here, open this up. And they open it up, and it's exactly what they like, what they told us they like. If they said it's Almond Joy or Mounds or Hershey's or whatever it is, that's what's in that bag. And then we stop and we tell them, how do you feel right now? And they always say, happy, I'm so excited, this is great. Um, and we tell them, that's how our customers feel when we ship our products because it is always what they order. There's no mistaking. You, can't, you know, it's barcode verification, it's bin location verification, everything's verified. Uh, it cuts down on labor costs for us and it makes it more efficient for the customer and happy. So, so that helps us keep the customers very happy that we have that process and that way of thinking. And then we have things like loyalty reward programs on our site that are very easy to use. There's no hoops to jump through. You're not purchasing, and then three months later we'll sum up and give you 5% of what you purchase, and then it expires. Not at all. We just say you bought $100, there's $5 in your shopping cart for next time. That's it. And next time you go in, it's already there. You just hit the button that says use my credit. It applies it to your balance. Very easy. And that's helped us retain customers. Um, and, you know, the more traffic we drive to the site, the more we can get those people to come back later and go to voluntarily give us their email so that we can notify them about more deals. And, and we see that when we do an email blast on any of our sites, you know, sales uh, spike those days because, you know, those customers are the ones paying off. Yeah. Well, that's totally amazing. I can tell you now, my wife um, spends a lot of time online uh, looking for for different products. Doesn't matter which country they're in. And um, you know, the one of her best moments during the week or the month is when she receives um, those clothes or whatever she might have bought for her daughter or something. And and you know, it's it's amazing uh, how technology has come so far that um, you know you can buy clothing from from the UK and you're based in Australia and 
you get the exact clothing. Um, and because the worst thing is it's the wrong size and you've got to send it <laughs> and it's going to, you're just going to wait and it, that's the worst, the worst thing. Um, where, where do you ship to? Do you go right across the world? Yeah, across the world. There are some limitations wherever the U.S. Postal Service does not allow us to ship to. Any countries that are on a banned list, that's a short list. Uh, and then there are some countries that unfortunately we have to, and we're not alone. I know a lot of e-commerce sites have to ban simply because of the amount of fraud. There are certain countries that are just high in fraud. So it's too bad for the good people in that country. They don't get to buy. We get those inquiries all the time, and we have to tell them, sorry, we've just gotten way too many, you know, fraud you, know, you lose ten thousand dollars in a country in fraud you stop selling there if, if it's a high percentage of your business so but otherwise yeah we sell all over our our niche is uh, you know majority u.s number two is canada number three i believe is australia and then i think number four might be uk france germany right around there for those right i want to um shift joel to um a story that I heard you share around how you manage your personal finances, and I just wanted you to touch on this because this is, I used to run a real estate business um, for students, and uh, from time to time I get to my coaching sessions and my workshops, people want to understand, you know, the real estate strategies, etc. And I heard you share something that really got me excited about how you um, thought through and navigated um, your first property, and uh, maybe just share that story with our audience. Yeah, that was a, a gr- I, you know, not to be, not to be cocky, but to me that's a great story. Every time I think about it, I get excited. So I think it's a good story. When I was 22 years old, which again, uh, at the time I was making ten dollars and twenty cents an hour, something like that, um, full time job, doing flea markets on the side, doing anything I could to make a little bit of money. Um, again, grew up poor. I was paying my parents' rent since I was 18. I paid four, uh, $400 a month. So, so I, didn't have it, I didn't have it easy at all. I didn't live in a nice neighborhood. I didn't have rich friends. Everything was the opposite of what you would hope for for your kids. Um, so when I, was about, when I was 19, I got my first real job. Uh, I'd been working since I was 15 but, but in an actual job, but this was my first real job. And I decided to start saving money because I wanted to buy a house. I didn't want to pay my parents' rent anymore. I wanted to move out and have independence. So at 19, I made that decision, and I started putting the money away. And I, I, I got it to around, I was putting about $1,000 a month at one point uh, away. And to do that, it was simple. I, I couldn't go out to eat. I couldn't go to the movies. I couldn't go do any of the things that other 19-year-olds were doing. And I don't regret one minute of it. It was all very well worth it because it's a sacrifice you make early and then it pays off big time. So what I did was at 22 years old, I bought a house, my first house. I moved from San Francisco area where my parents lived. Uh, I moved to Los Angeles, 400 miles away, you know, five-hour drive. And... Um, I bought a house for $160,000. I put down, what's that, 32000 is 20%, I think. Um, and that was my down payment. I was able to make that down payment without borrowing that from anybody, no gift, no anything. I just put that away. And the beauty of it is, the reason this was exciting isn't because I bought a house. It's because I bought a house and then I lived for free. Um, I bought a three-bedroom, two-bath home. I kept the master bedroom for myself and the master bathroom. And then I rented out the other two bedrooms that had their own bathroom on the other side of the house. Small house, but, you know, good enough. And my mortgage on that loan 
back then interest rates were like eight point something percent, I think, or six point eight or something like that. Um, my mortgage was eight hundred nineteen dollars and sixty cents. So I rented each of those bedrooms out for four hundred dollars. So they covered a good chunk of my mortgage. So my responsibility each month was now was now $19.60. That's what I paid for my home. Obviously, I paid the property tax and the homeowner's insurance, but when my mortgage is $19, it's not so bad. And then we took the electrical, the gas, and the water, and we divided it by three, the two roommates and I. And these were all full-time workers, part-time at night in college, so we never ran into each other. It was the most convenient way of living. We were all young, you know, uh, 22, 23 or so. Um, so what that enabled me to do is that 12 months later, lo and behold, I had some money in the bank again. So I was able to buy another property, a rental property, and I did that. Twelve, another 12 months later, I bought my third property, and that was my second rental property in Florida. I bought it in Miami. Uh, and then the following year, I bought my fourth property. So I was able to really build up uh, something there by just you know, with starting with zero. Now, here's the funny story. Uh, well, not funny. At the time, it was not funny. Now, it's fine. Um, I ended up losing everything in real estate a few years later because it was a massive boom in the U.S., especially South Florida, where I'm at, and I had everything in real estate. I was in my 20s, and I got my net worth up to maybe almost $900,000 after, you know, taking my assets, taking out all my debt. That's what my net worth was. You know, a guy who at the time, I wasn't making more than $16 an hour, but I was worth $900,000. I was in my 20s. It was all invested in real estate and not very leveraged. I put big down payments on all those purchases, uh, the ones that I later had. And then it all got wiped out, and I was not able to uh, recover. I got down to a zero net worth, and then that was around the time that the trade shows, and I started building it back up. And, and then as soon as I lost it all in real estate, at that same moment, the uh, clothing business picked up and picked up the slack. <laughs> well, that's amazing. I love that for, for, for the very fact that um, it's... It's it's the ability to to think outside the box and and really get into the market for for somebody who is young or for somebody who's trying to get back into the market for for whatever reason and you you've got that capacity. Um, I used to actually um, lease large properties and um, release them to to students room by room, furnished. So that's kind of a similar strategy, but more high maintenance. And I, I teach that and. Um, and um, what you've shared is, is another strategy where, you know, you buy and you, you lease out some of the rooms when you're comfortable to do so. And uh, I think it's great and everybody, everybody gets a, a win out of it. So, so thank you for sharing that. I, I really loved that when I heard that. So um, I want to I wanna switch to, to a different um, sort of uh, part of the show. And uh, I wanted to ask you and probe a little bit more into sort of maybe your, your life philosophies. How would you rank these um, five uh, five philosophies or, or um, life situations, if you like, faith, fun, family, finances, and friendships. Hmm. All right. Let me think. Um, number one for me would have to be finances, uh, even above family, and I'll tell you why. Um, when when the finances are strong, then I could be much better at all the other things, Um like my family, if I don't have good finances because I don't earn a lot or because I've made poor decisions in my spending, then I have to be away all day working and stressing and struggling. And when I get home, I'd be an ogre and I wouldn't be very, very much fun to be around. So then my family would suffer and my relationship with them would suffer. So um, but for me, it all starts with finances. That's just my way of thinking. Uh, 
next is family. You know, I've got a, a great wife. She's my best friend. In 14 years, we don't get in fights. We love each other. We're, we spend every minute together. Uh, and my kids, we have four kids. Uh, and I want to be with them all the time. So that's, that's huge. Um, and so is finances, family, fun, and friendship. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. Then the last one was faith. So that, that comes okay. in last. So that's cool. And, okay, so next would be fun. Um, and again, the fun for me doesn't have to mean expensive vacations or the most amazing experiences. Um, but it's just for us, you know, with four kids, for us, we get a big kick out of going to the park and having a picnic and we ride bike there with the four kids and, uh, and we do those sorts of things. We go to the beach. Um, we like to go out and eat and, and then that's, that fun is with the family. It's also with friends, and that's the next thing. I think friendships, uh, they're great. I, I love friendships, but I'm not a type of guy who has 100 friends. I have a good group of friends, and uh, and the first ones are my wife and my kids because that's who I'm with all the time. Uh, yeah. Did I cover them all? Fi- finance, family, fun, friends? Yeah. Well, that yeah. Then okay. the last one was faith, so that, that comes in last, so that's cool. Oh, faith. Yeah, faith. If it if it's meant in a religious sense, I'm I'm not a very religious person. So cool. Now that's a, that's good. Just um, gives all of us a bit of an insight into into you, into your, you personally. Uh, so thanks for sharing that, um, Joel. Give us a thirty second look into a day in your life when you started your business um, versus a day in your life today. Oh, um, it's a 180 degree difference. Uh, when I started the business, I would work with no problem, no complaints, absolutely 16 hours a day. Uh, many of those months, there was no salary because every cash, penny, every dollar that came in would go back out to more inventory and buying new racks to put in our little warehouse, whatever it may have been at the time. It was, you know, 16 hours a day, constant stress, constant thinking the business may go under any minute now with, if I lose one big customer. Um, and now, uh, I don't think I, those 16 hours I do a day, I never do 16 hours a week anymore. I don't work that much. Um, instead I do things that I love to do. I, I mentor, um, in through a few organizations now, uh, and I do that for free, obviously. And I go do things that I love to do. So, uh, I do the normal things with business. I check my email every day, many times a day. Uh, I talk to our, uh, chief operating officer and, and make sure everything's going well and get thoughts from him. And I think of bigger picture things now. I'm looking at, I just, right before our, this call, I, signed a non-disclosure agreement to look at a business that I'm interested in buying in California. So that's the type of stuff I do now. It's not uh, the day-to-day little things that I used to do that were so crucial, so important. Uh, but it, you know, it's a lot different. It's a lot more rewarding now. And then again, also back then, it's funny, 16 hours a day to make X amount of dollars in a month. Now I can work 16 hours in a month, If I mean in a, in a week at most. I don't even do that. To make that much money that I used to make in a month, now it's in a day. So it's very encouraging to know that if you crank it out and you work really hard, you know, yeah, now I mean, yeah, again, that's, that's what it is. It's what it used to be in a month is made now in a day and with no work. So I think that that comes with a lot of sweat and, 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 and hard work. So, um, so that's great. I mean, a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs, um, some are still pushing really, really hard, uh, and I'm sure you can in terms of, you know, cranking out lots of hours a week and growing your business further. But, um, you know, it sounds like you've chosen to, to spend your time doing other, other things and, um, and sort of leverage your business through, 
having a, a great team, I would assume. That's right, because I'm not very good at a lot of things, but there are a lot of people out there that are good at things. So I'd rather let them have a go at it, and they'll do it better than I will, and it frees up my time. And in the end, it's better economically because I wouldn't have done as good a job, and I can't be everywhere. So let them do it, have them own a piece of it and earn some money. And in the end, I get a better reward and a better quality of life. That's my way of seeing it today. It's easy to say now, but that's not how it was in the past. Yeah. Here's a question I have for you. I mean, number one, um, I'm not sure if, you're, if, you're, if your parents are still around. Um, I'm interested to hear what what they they say based on you know your your backdrop of your story of how everything um, started for you in in the U.S. and um, and where you are today financially and you know lifestyle wise and and also I've heard a number of people say you know your um, the fact that maybe you came through that kind of a migrant type um, situation which is similar for me and my family. Um, maybe actually helped you, and do you, do you feel it might not um, translate for your kids? Yeah, um, I the shirt that I wore when I was four years old and came on a small boat to this country, I still have it hanging in my closet. So it's the only thing I have. We weren't able to bring anything. My parents were not able to bring wedding rings, uh, clothing, uh, anything. We we came with nothing, uh, not even a birth certificate. We had to get that. 20 years later. Um, so the only thing I had was that shirt and I still have it hanging. So for me, it's a constant reminder every single day that I grew up in a poor communist country with no freedom, no elections, no freedom of speech and no ability to earn money unless you're a corrupt leader in that country. Well, to where I am today, every day I wake up, I think, wow, I am very fortunate to be here. So I got to make this count. You know, that's what I've always thought. Uh, when I didn't want to get up to go to work for, uh, to work 16 hours because I was sick and I had the flu, I got up and I did it every single day. So, um, so yeah, I have that within me and I think it has to do with my background. Um, my, you know, people in my family have had to have it pretty rough and work really hard and I did too when I was younger. So I remember all of that. And then the way I come, combat that, uh, on my kids is, I tell them all the time. I say, they know my finances, they know my P&L, they know my balance sheet, and they're, and I mean the older two, they're 11 and 9. They're smart kids, they get it. They know what our sales are every day because I look at my phone and I say it. I say, oh, we're up to this today, we're up to that, you know, so I'll, I'll explain that. But they're very clear on what, what will be their part of it, and it's zero. And I tell them that. It's not the truth. But that's what I tell them. I say, none of this is yours. None of it. You will go out and build this on your own. Whatever you want to do, build it, because all of this is going to charity. And it's not all going to go to charity. I have to give them something. But, but that's what I tell them, because I want them to have the fire that I had. I can't tell them what my dad used to tell me. If I said, you know, I, I didn't have very many toys when I was little, uh, but, but when I would ask for some, my dad, and I'd say, well, so-and-so has it, uh, my dad would say, I don't care. We do not have the money. I either buy food or I buy you that toy, and I would say, okay, fine, buy you the food. Um, so I can't say that to my kids. They'll know I'm lying. They'll look at my, the house and the car, and they'll say, how do you mean we don't have any money? So, um, 
so I build that fire in another way that I tell them it's not guaranteed. So just uh, here's an interesting side note. You want to hear about starting entrepreneurship early. I don't tell my kids what to do, but I do give them advice. And both of my kids, with zero allowance from us, with zero gifts, they both, at 9 and 11 years old, have well over $1,000 in the bank, each of them. And the way they've done this is... In the beginning, I did loan them some money, and they paid me right back. I told them some ideas. I said, you know, you could buy chocolate candy bars wholesale in boxes and sell them retail. And so they've done that. They've sold so many candy bars. Uh, they'll buy them wholesale for $0.60. Cents. They'll sell them for a dollar, and they make $0.40 cents on each one. And they understand this very well. They do lemonade stands here in our neighborhood. Uh, it's a great neighborhood to do a lemonade stand. They, they'll make as much as $80, $88 in one day in about four hours of work. And they buy the powder, they buy the cups, they make the signs, they put up a table. So my kids are always, uh, one of them is on Alibaba.com, the 11-year-old searching for products all the time, and we've made several purchases. I lend him the credit card, he pays me back later. He buys cell phone covers, uh, you know, all these fun things. And then I know I'm going off on a tangent, but uh, it's important if anyone out there who listens to this uh, hears about, you know, their children or hears ever about a kid who wants to do something or or you want to get their attention and focus on a good thing, I highly encourage this. I was at a store once uh, about a year ago, and a kid wanted to buy the, the some rubber bands to make or something like that to make some bracelets that he could sell at school. And he was asking the mom, and the mom started talking to the clerk at the store saying, and here's the mom talking about her son, I don't know what he's thinking. What is he, some sort of entrepreneur? What is he, crazy? And my... My heart was broken, and it was not my place to say anything, so I just put my head down and walked out. But I felt so bad for that kid because he was he was so on the right track. I swear, I wanted to stop the mom and tell her, ma'am, you know, I started with nothing, and I had a little idea, and I've become a multimillionaire from doing little things like that. That's all it is. It's, and it, the lessons that kid would have learned from doing that experience, hopefully he goes around his mom's back and does it anyway. But, but yeah, I encourage everybody to do things like that if it's in them that is amazing and i love love the passion in your voice um and we've got we've got a five-year-old as i said before and um you know that that'll be just amazing to pass on some of those and just to know that their their mindset is being freed up so that they can they can reach for the skies and and beyond um fantastic well joel um, we're going to wrap this up pretty quickly um do you invest in mentors um if yes why and um who are those for you yeah, I do have one mentor other than people I read about and I in my mind I think what would they do? What what advice would they give me? I think like that. But there is one person who for the last uh 13 years or so has helped me um and I met him through a professor of mine in college and oh and by the way, college when I say college it was 10 years spread out while I was building a business. But one of the professors that I had uh, introduced me to someone, and he has given me some great advice as someone who sold some companies off to public companies and has done very well, great entrepreneur. So I, I'm having lunch with him next week, uh, and I have lunch with him every couple of months. I always invite him out, obviously. He's got so much to offer me, and um, I'm very appreciative of his time and but I, cause, because he's been through everything I – I have in mind, or if I'm doing an acquisition, just a month ago I wrote him and told him about something. I was, these acquisitions, the new ones, and he agreed that they're good. You know, they're good ideas, and, and go for it. Blah blah blah. Um, he doesn't tell me what to do. He just gives me his ideas or his thoughts, and I go with that. So yeah, I find that to be very important. That's amazing. 
Um, what are the two books that um, you have read and you think are great reads for, for an entrepreneur? Mm-hmm. I'm glad you said two. Even though I've read like 200, um, there's really two that I tell everyone that I talk to that are the two books that changed my life personally. And they are in this order because this is the order I read them in. And I, for me, it was perfect. I read The Secret. And, and as I was reading it, I thought, Oh, this is just this mumbo jumbo. Throw it out to the universe. It's so spiritual. This is crazy. But I, I stopped myself and I said, you know what? Just read the book and act like you believe it until it's finished. And I read it and I said, okay, I'm going to believe in all of this and positive thinking. And I did it. And now it's just my default. It's the way I think. Um, so that book really helped shape me who I am today. And it, earlier in the interview, I said, you, I said something about, you know, I'm a very optimistic person. I wasn't always that way. Um, and I'm proud of that, that change that I've made. And this book was a big part of that. And the second book was how to win friends and influence people. Dale Carnegie. Um, that book got me thinking differently. You want people to do what you want. Everybody does. You know, Nobody wants people to do the opposite of what they want them to do. But you can't force them to do it, but you can win them over on your side. And a lot of the things I think for me, I was always a friendly kid. Those things came natural. It wasn't too complicated. But there were some great tips in that book to help you to win people over and make good friends and, you know, and have good relationships. Yeah. Well, I appreciate um, you sharing that. That's great. Um, what is the best way, Joel, as we wrap this up, for um, people to connect with you? Sure. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Joel Gandara, J-O-E-L-G-A-N-D-A-R-A. And anyone can email me as well. It's Joel Gandara at morocapital.com. And that's Joel, J-O-E-L, Gandara, G-A-N-D-A-R-A, at morocapital.com. And that's M-O-R-R-O capital which is c-a-p-i-t-a-l dot com well that's fantastic and uh, we'll we'll link up all of that um, in the show notes so um, and we appreciate you being uh, so open and, and reachable because um, I know you're flat out you're busy so I appreciate that Joel before I uh, ask my last question I just wanted to acknowledge you for everything that you know you were doing in the marketplace you know all the companies that you were acquiring and helping translate you know, those business owners' whose dreams into, into a reality, being able to cash out because not everybody's able to do that. And, you know, all the lessons that you're, you're teaching the next generation and all the mentorship that you're providing in, in your community. And, and uh, above that, coming on to this show and helping our audience get some of that um, wisdom that you have um, acquired over the many, many years in business. So I'm really grateful for that and appreciate your time. And now for the last question, Joel, when uh, all is said and done, um, what legacy do you want to leave and be remembered for? And tell us why. Um, I guess nothing too special. Uh, I guess I want to be remembered as a, a guy who, who had a, didn't have a lot going for him starting out um, with what I was, you know, the way my life started. I was born, like I said, in a communist country and no opportunities to accomplish anything. And at four years old, I had the best luck imaginable and moved to a free country. I grew up in the United States. And, um, you know, I, I've heard it said you need a, a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work. Well, I got the luck early on at four years old that I got to move here. I put in the hard work and, and it's paid off. That's all probably a little too long for a tombstone, but you get the idea. Well, fantastic. Well, 
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for hanging out with me and Joel today. I um, hope you had as much fun as I did hearing all his um, amazing stories. But more importantly, what I hope for you is that um, you can get your hopes up that you are good enough to chase your dreams. We've heard Joel's testimony and his story and how he's chased his dreams. So um, it's been a great interview today. Remember to head on over to businessgenerals.com for all the show notes. Just type in Joel in the search bar and his show notes will pop up with everything that we've talked about today. That's businessgenerals.com. And um, you can read Joel at Joel Gandara at LinkedIn and also um, at moralcapital.com. So Joel, thank you very much for being on the Business Generals podcast today and for sharing your story with us. For that, we're very grateful. You are a true business general. Thank you, Dave. It's my pleasure to be with you and I wish you continued success. Thank you. Hey, what's up, Business Journalist family? Thank you for joining me and for listening to the Business Journalist podcast. Connect with me at Davis Mutabwa. That's D-A-V-I-S-M-U-T-A-B-W-A. Connect with me on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and you can certainly find me at our podcast blog, businessjournals.com. And while you're there, remember to access all the show notes, a ton of free resources, killer training, and so much more. Love you guys. Thank you for joining me. Ciao.